From Mito Japan, I'm Frank Ling, and you're listening to the Grok Science Show. That's right, it's a weekly look at the world of science, technology, and the way it affects our daily lives. Coming up on this week's show, Dr. Alex Rutherford will join us to talk about the limits of social media. So stay tuned for all this, plus the Grokatron 5000, here on the Grok Science Show. Welcome back to the program. Well, the news has changed enormously over the last decade from traditional media to social networks. Well, joining us today to talk about some of these transformations and their limits is Dr. Alex Rutherford from the Mastar Institute. Uh, Dr. Rutherford, thank you so much for joining us here today. Hi, it's a pleasure. So could you tell us a little bit about Mastar Institute? It's a new institute that we have, we have here in the, in the UAE, in the United Arab Emirates, and the focus is on sustainable energy and all aspects of uh, renewable energy and uh, desalination and you know, traditional, traditional research for, uh, for, so, for solar panels and these kinds of things, but then also kind of on the periphery sort of talking about um, aspects of collective behavior, and that's more where our research comes in. This link between, you know, renewable energies and social behavior, is it because the university's interested in having a holistic view of how behavior can inform ways of implementing these new types of energy? Yes, absolutely, absolutely. Uh, the question of how do opinions, how do... Uh, how do new practices, how do these things propagate on social networks? I mean, it's, it's, it's really key to the uptake of sustainable practice. And there's also this, the question of how do we, how do we influence people's behaviors? Uh, and that sort of comes in with uh, smart buildings, smart grids, things like this. To what extent can you, in a sense, incentivize people to do different things? Um, what's the best way to do it, and really, what are what are the limits? Uh, you know, uh, to what extent can we actually kind of make people do what we want them to do, if you like? Give me a practical example. Uh, you know, what are some of the incentive systems that people use, or or you know, at least are part of the everyday lives, uh, at least in you know, say the Western context? Sure, sure. Okay. Well, as far as uh, as far as uh, sort of crowdsourced uh, crowdsourcing challenges and uh, these sorts of contexts. Uh, there's a few really good examples. So uh, there's there's this platform Ushahidi, which which I guess you and most of your listeners will have heard of. And really, the incentive there is you know it, it's charitable, it's it's altruistic, um, and you know so people want to contribute information, they want to do it in a timely manner, and they you know they don't want anything back. But then there are the kinds of challenges which which led to the, this uh, recent research which we've done, such as the the balloon challenge, and this was more of a sort of a, more of a blue sky question, I suppose. It was uh, like blue sky research. They were interested in, you know, how can we how can we map out really large geographical areas? 
the order of the whole of the mainland US and how can we do this in a, in a distributed fashion? And in, in that case, the, the reward, you know, the whole motivation was not altruistic. There was, there was a prize money there. Uh, so people responded well to that. And in fact, one of the teams actually said, you know, call in with, uh, with reports, with sightings of balloons, and we'll give the money to charity. And uh, they, they didn't end up winning the competition. So you can, you know, you can draw your own conclusions from that. But, uh, you know, other, other contexts where these kinds of uh, incentives come in useful, uh, related more closely to sustainable energy are things like um, the nudge, uh, the idea of the, the nudge unit, which is very popular in the UK at the moment. Let's say you're filling in your tax return. Um, you can influence sort of how, how honest people are in very subtle ways just by changing, the, changing how uh, they fill in these forms. For example, if you sign at the top of the form, then uh, people tend to be a little bit more honest than if you ask them to put their name into it at the end. With regards to uh, getting people to reduce their consumption, uh, if you if you make some very very simple steps like uh, actually just having a very clear meter, if you like, of um, a very clear meter showing the cost, you know, the the actual amount in dollars that they're using, then this cuts this cuts down um, this cuts down their consumption dramatically. And then if you take it to the next level and actually tell people what their friends are consuming and how how much you know they've cut down, then it becomes a sort of a competition because you're you're able to leverage the importance of these social connections, and and that's actually a much that's actually much more influential than, for example, just uh, just telling someone while well, you're saving yourself money. Okay, so basically, it's a, a contrast between say internal values to save money versus uh, external values to you know one up your neighbor is that right yes yeah exactly it's uh, somehow sort of uh, sort of keeping up with the joneses you know it gives you uh, some sort of social some sort of social context to to your actions i think this comes up in some debates is that whether that's a good or a bad thing to to rely uh, so much on these external cues rather than to uh, create environments where people have a uh, you know internal sense of wanting to you know take up certain social values like say renewable energies yeah absolutely absolutely i mean i think it's still it's to be honest i think the the kind of ethical implications are, we're still kind of catching up with them that that that's true and there's a few there's a few sort of quite tricky crunch questions that i think will come up in the future but you know, to be honest, uh, I, I think to some extent it's it's happening now, and it's it's happening a lot in the in the future. Uh, it's, it's been happening even in the past. You know, sort of behind the scenes with the the kinds of um, well, perhaps interventions is too strong of a word, but the the kind of things that go on behind the background in uh, social media applications like Facebook. Uh, right. There was a, a fairly high profile uh, campaign during the uh, last U.S. election where, uh, again, they, they, uh, these researchers, um, it was James Fowler over at uh, UC San Diego, they added a little banner at the top of different people's Facebook pages on the, on the day of the election or you know, the days running up to the election. And they basically said, these are your friends, these, these friends have, have voted. And they looked at, you know, how much does that make these make you want to go out and vote yourself? 
not only that, but how much more does it make you want to go out and vote um, mm -hmm. when you just tell people, you know, there's an election on and here is your nearest, uh, your nearest uh, polling booth. And that, that, that was a very nice sort of simple intervention. And I think, you know, no one can really argue with increased, you know, participation in, in elections. So that's, that's a nice kind of, um, kind of unequivocally altruistic uh, intervention. You know, you alluded to this uh, a balloon challenge, the so-called uh, DARPA network challenge that um, I think you've written about in your recent paper, The Limits of Social Mobilization. Um, could you tell us a little bit more about that? Sure, sure. Uh, so on, on this uh, now somewhat fabled uh, weekend back in 2009, the, uh, on the 40th anniversary of, of the Internet, the... Um, Defense Advanced Research Projects Agency, or, or DARPA as, it, as it's better known, uh, launched a challenge to say, well, you know, 40 years, we have the internet for 40 years, let's, you know, let's really ask what, what kind of problems that we can use the internet to solve. So they, they, they said, okay, we're going to hide 10 balloons, 10 big conspicuous weather balloons uh, around the US, and we're going to ask people to use social media to try and report report them back to us, and they you know, they didn't really know if this is actually something that was possible or not. A bunch of very smart guys at MIT uh, decided to to participate. They confounded everyone by joining the, the competition uh, just two months before, just two days before the balloons were released. Even though they, the whole competition had been announced one month before, and they were able to uh, find all of the balloons, I think, within uh, within twelve hours. And you know this is uh, one of these one of these sort of classic like um, uh, sort of disruptive observations in science. All of a sudden, you know, these guys managed to do this thing that no one had any idea if it was if it was possible or not. And like a lot of great observations in science, it it really provided a bunch more new questions than it did answers to old questions. And really, what we wanted to do with with this research is once the dust had settled, we wanted to say, okay, well, you know, this was an amazing, amazing thing that happened here. You know, this has lots of implications, and really, it it, it demonstrated that online social networks and and uh, digital communication can really do some amazing things. But actually, is it reliable? Is this is this just a one-off? I mean, we can't. Let's say we want to use this kind of idea to um, search for missing children, or if we want to try and track down. Uh, you know, Whitey Bulger hiding out uh, in California or, or something like that. You know, is this something we can really rely on? We can't always rely on the the high profile, um, the high profile nature, the high profile sponsorship of DARPA. So we wanted to take a sort of systematic view and and basically kind of roll the dice a bunch of times and see. Well, let's say you know, let's repeat this, uh, let's repeat this a hundred times and see and see really. On balance, uh, how reliable this this kind of uh, this kind of idea is. I see, and um, you know these social networks you mentioned those uh, on the internet are they a direct map of real world networks that you know are just accelerated much at a much quicker level, or are there some fundamental differences? Right, right. No, that, that that's a good question. So. You know, with the, with this challenge, we were able to, or, or I should say, uh, our, our colleagues at MIT, they were able to, to some extent, partially observe you know this process that was going on. I mean, 
we, we know at the end of the day they recruited this, you know, this, this number of people responded to their, their initial emails and then a certain number of people sent it on to their friends and they all signed up to the MIT website and said, yes, I'm, I'm on the lookout for balloons and then, yes, I've, I've recruited my friends and I've told them to go and look. You know, we were able to sort of track it on Twitter and so on. So we have like kind of murky idea of, of what was going on, what actually led to all of these balloons being, being observed. But, but you're right, we, we don't have you know, a clear picture of, of exactly what was going on behind the scenes. So we took a kind of statistical approach to, the, uh, to kind of reconstructing these social networks. So we know, for example, we know from census data you know, where people are in the US, like very, very accurately, which is very nice. Mm-hmm. And we kind of use this as, as our basis. And there's been a, a bunch of interesting work on uh, basically, let's say I'm living in, you know, in place, uh, in place X, where, how far away from me do my friends live? I mean, okay, presumably if I, if I go 10 kilometers away, I have less friends that live so far away compared to, you know, looking a bit more closely one kilometer away but exactly how does that change and so there's there's some very very interesting laws which basically say if you live in Manhattan where everyone is living on top of each other well probably most of your friends are you know within a few blocks of you but if you go out to the middle of the desert if you go out to Arizona then chances are most of your friends live you know 20-30 kilometers away from you so we have this uh, you know we can formalize this this idea of of kind of how, how our friends are spread out. And from that, we can kind of construct an artificial social network that, that to all intents and purposes, uh, resembles the real social networks that you see on Facebook and Twitter and, and, uh, and uh, through email and so on. I'm just curious here. Uh, I think the precursor to some of the, the current experiments in this field was the famous uh, Stanley Milgram experiment about where he sent a letter across the United States. This phrase, uh, six degrees of separation, does this also apply on these social networks? Right, right, yes, uh, absolutely. I mean, Milgram's really the, uh, you know, the, the godfather for this, these, these kinds of questions. What, in, the, in the balloon challenge, the question was subtly different than the, the six degrees of separation experiments because no one actually knew where to look. The balloons were in the U.S., and that's it. That's the only information we had. Mm-hmm. So in some sense, you know, your best strategy, if you want to find it, is to just tell as many people as possible. You, you don't know to, you know, target your friends who live on the eastern seaboard or in the Midwest or any particular place. You just wanted to, you know, just by force of numbers, just tell as many people about it as possible. The thing with the Milgram experiments is it was all about, uh, all about sort of targeting um, targeting a particular person. Now, normally, so he, he basically, um, so the idea of the, of the six degrees of separation experiments was to target so, uh, as an academic living in, in Boston, if, if, memory, if memory serves. Uh, so you have kind of a, a kind of sort of fuzzy target to aim for. Mm-hmm. And even if you didn't know the person directly, well, you would aim for someone who lives in New York, for example, or someone who moves in academic circles. Mm-hmm. So it's, some, it's somehow subtly different. People can kind of, you know, have some affiliation with, um, with, say, with this person by occupation or rough location that they can sort of begin to leverage. In some senses, the, the DARPA balloon challenge type search, the 
blind search is easier, but in some senses it's, it's uh, somewhat more difficult. You know, one of the findings in this uh, paper was that there are limits to these networks, and a lot of that depends on uh, certain connectors or the, those who are extremely connected. Um, could you uh, expand on that a little bit? So yeah, absolutely, you're right. We, you know, we 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 put together this simulation, the balloons, and we set off the search over at MIT and and watched how, as the simulation progressed, how people were able to find these balloons, how the message spread around, and and we looked at the the time it took. Now, as I said, those guys at MIT managed to find all the balloons and and locate them all in in twelve hours. And we found we found that actually, you know, to our surprise, this was this was kind of feasible. But uh, interestingly, you have just you, you have this small number of people who you really crucially rely on to propagate the message in a in a timely way. Um, and uh, if you look at the activity of users of, of Facebook, um, you find there's you know there's people there's a, the class of users like like your parents who are basically just friends with their children and a few other people here and there and maybe log on to Facebook, you know, once a week or what have you. But then you have these super connected guys at the other end of the, of the spectrum. They're the ones with, you know, up to 400 friends on Facebook. I, I only have 200 friends on Facebook, so I'm, I, you know, this, I can't even claim to be, uh, to be as popular as, as these guys, to be one of these, these super nodes, if you like. <laughs> but these uh, these these guys with with lots of friends, not not only do they have lots of friends, but they're the ones that check Facebook every half an hour. So as soon as something comes in, something interesting, they you know they they can ping it out to all of their friends and 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 push it forward. So you really rely on these on these few guys to really push things along because if we basically if we just relied on our on our uh, on our parents, then it would have taken a lot longer than twelve hours. Well, it, it seems like uh, you know you're doing uh, very interesting research. Uh, I, I'm, you know, I'm curious about uh, this this concept of uh, virality. It seems to imply that, uh, or your work seems to imply that, to some extent, that virality can be induced or or manufactured. But is that really the case in real life? Yeah, that's 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 an interesting question. That, that's that's a very interesting question. There's there's lots of people really interested in really interested in this. Hmm. Like the example you mentioned with Facebook uh, banners for election day, can those uh you know little cues uh drive an entire social movement to you know, for example, um not just a viral video but you know something a little bit more substantial. Yeah, I, I think I, I think definitely you can you know, you have these two broad classes of these two sort of broad classes of how something can really, you know, become viral. You have the kind of brute force, uh, old-style broadcast media um, way of sort of, you know, seeding all, all of these these little sort of cascades, these ideas with lots of people. But but it's really kind of old-fashioned now. I mean, pe- people don't people choose very carefully what they, you know, the news that they consume and so on. So you can't, you can't rely on people, you know, every, <laughs> back in the, back in the day in the UK, everyone used to sit down and watch the six o'clock news and, you know, everyone would then have the same, you know, across the country would, would listen to the same news. But, but now, uh, you, you know, increasingly you're right. You see these sort of gra- uh, grass level viral campaigns coming up and, uh, and actually, you know, 
very very momentous things have 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 sort of bubbled up in this way mm-hmm. like you know in the last few years the kind of things we've been seeing in the middle east uh with the arab spring and so on these started from relatively small events you know actually events that that at the time and, and in that context really were somewhat somewhat typical not really out of the ordinary but just uh by being able to reach people who had a very strong affiliation with certain stories or certain messages, these things were able to propagate very, very quickly and propagate to people who not, who not only had some affiliation with it, but were able to really act on it and actually do something about it. The, the strength in, this kind of, in these kinds of mechanisms is, is accessing the right people, you know, people who can actually do something about it. And, uh, and, and social networks are far and away the best way to do this. You mentioned that this research opened up more questions than it answered. Um, what are the uh, you know interesting questions being asked uh, in this field of human network theory? Well, the, as as we discussed, you know, the main example is the main question that, that that came out is that it's possible in the future to imagine you have some task that you want to do. Um, you want to locate someone or, or so on, can you, can you just order a social mobilization, for example? Can you pay someone to somehow leverage this kind of, this kind of behavior to, to do in, incredibly complicated tasks that, that it's impossible for any, any one person or any one group of people to do in, in a reasonable amount of time? To some extent, the jury's still out on that one. We've also answered to some extent um, whether this distributed sharing of, of information can actually begin to really approach and replace mainstream media. And, and we've come down on the, on the side of, of, yes, it can. And we don't really have any say in it. It's already, it's already happening. Mm-hmm. I guess we're running a little bit out of time. Uh, are there last, any last words you'd like to add about yourself or your work? I need to say, you know, this is, this is really a very young field at the moment and people should keep their eye out for, for more work in this area. There was uh, another challenge we participated in uh, just last year, um, which was more along the lines of the, of the idea of a manhunt. And uh, this time we had five mugshots to, to target to people towards. And these guys were uh, acting as criminals um, on the run in New York Washington, D.C., Bratislava in Stockholm, London and Bratislava in Europe. Again, this was like a subtly different question to the balloon challenge because, you know, these guys were on the move, but we have, but you had this mugshot to, to sort of guide people. And we have some, some interesting results coming out about that too. You know, I'd encourage people to, to listen out for our, uh, for our forthcoming work if, if they find this interesting. Great. Well, we're going to look forward to that. Uh, Dr. Rutherford, thank you so much for joining us on Grok Science this week. Thank you, thank you. And we were just talking to Dr. Alex Rutherford from the Madison Institute on his recent paper, The Role of Social Media in Social Mobilization. In a few moments, he'll join us for the Grokotron 5000, so stay right there. Dr. Rutherford has kindly agreed to join us in this week's 
Crocotron 2000, the computer formerly known as Deep Blue. Uh, so this week's game is Socially Realized or Not, and I'm going to name you five subjects, and you're going to tell me if they're socially mobilized or not. All right, uh, subject number one, uh, social mobilized or not, uh, Groupon. Okay, is, uh, is Groupon socially mobilized or not? Well, uh, I see Groupon somewhat as a, uh, as a kind of as a kind of Ponzi scheme, and uh, we can certainly see some parallels with um, uh, with the balloon challenge and the way people were paid to um, were paid to recruit their friends, and then their friends were recruited were paid to recruit their friends. So yes, I'm going to say Groupon is socially mobilized. All right, uh, subject number two: a company notoriously known for a closed ecosystem has no Facebook link, has no Twitter link. American company Apple, socially mobilized or not? Hmm, interesting. Well, I think I'm going to say Apple right now is is very much the uh, the epitome of uh, a hierarchical uh, company. Mm-hmm. You know, you have this big black box of of what those guys in in Cupertino want, what the next you know iPhone is going to look like. We're all just like uh, the the foot soldiers, if you like, waiting to waiting to receive what what comes next. But so I'm going to say at the moment, no, not socially mobilized. But I think I think we could see some. It would be very interesting to see if Apple actually start to participate a bit more in this in this uh, social media ecosystem, if you like. Okay, subject number three: uh, President of the United States, Obama. Not not the campaign, but his presidency. Sure, sure, his presidency. I see. Interesting. I know that. I know he's he's. But a pretty good presence on on Twitter. His his um, you know his his presidency as a whole. I mean, I don't really think that's him there tweeting you know on his BlackBerry kind of un- under the table as he's as he's at Davos or whatever. But who, whichever one of his aides is actually writing his tweets, I think they do a good job. I think they participate quite well. So yes, socially mobilized. Uh, subject number four: Star Wars character Yoda. <laughs> The, the force is with him, but is he socially mobilized? Yeah, yeah, yeah. For full disclosure, I'm not. I'm not really a Star Wars fan, so uh, I'm on, I'm on on the outside looking in. But this really kind of strong esoteric community of, of diehard Star Wars fans is, is is through social networks. So yeah, I'm going to say Yoda and the whole Star Wars oeuvre is is definitely socially mobilized. And uh, finally, subject number five. The government of the People's Republic of China, social mobilized or not? <laughs> that's <laughs> that's an interesting question. They they have okay. So uh, actually, they they have their own very peculiar brand of social mobilization in China. It's known as the Human Flesh Search Engine. Uh, I, I'm afraid to say the idea is is actually as unsavory as the, as the title. The idea is if someone behaves in a bad way, brings brings shame on themselves or their or their family or or does something does something out of the way, then uh, out of the uh, and does something uh, kind of untoward. The human flesh search engine allows you to find people who other like minded people who are offended by this person's behavior and together you can uh, you can find some way to 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 uh, find retribution for this person. And it's uh, it's kind of unsavory, but actually, it's a very uh, at, at the time. I think it's I think it's been to some extent outlawed now. 
but at the time it was actually very, very successful in, in mobilizing people because it was able to really tap into the kinds of things that, that, that people really cared about. So I'm going to say, yes, that the People's Republic of China are socially mobilized. Or, or would you say it's anti-socially mobilized? <laughs> <laughs> yes, maybe, maybe that's better, anti-socially mobilized. Okay, well, thank you so much for your kind insights. We just had Dr. Rutherford joining us here on the Grok Science Show. Okay, it's my pleasure. And that's all for this week's edition of the Grok Science Show. Make sure you tune in again next week for more from the world of science, technology, and the way it affects our daily lives. In the meantime, you can check us out on the web at www.groks.net, Facebook, and Twitter. To contact us, our email is science at groks.net. For Grok Science, I'm Frank Ling. Stay tuned here for more music. Dream.